Welcome inside the Paris Sea Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is a live edition of the Jake Feinberg Show. Comedy on Power Talk. Please go to our website, powertalk.live. Download our free app to your smartphone so you can stream all of our live local programming, including Solomon on Blast, the Jim Parisi Show, and yours truly, the Jake Feinberg Show. We can't thank you enough for making us part of your day today. And Uh, It is my job on this sacred journey that I've been on for seven and a half years to go after all the unsung heroes of music. It is, in fact, a people's history of music, and I've burrowed in on a time period from before I was born, a time of true authenticity when you really had to actually be a musician, a good artist, a legitimate artist, a good musician. You couldn't get by on Twitter followers. You couldn't get by on good looks. There was no auto-tune. You really had to be a good musician. And the best cats that I love to talk to outside of the jazz, you know, it's all music, but outside of the jazzers are the cats who basically were self-taught, used to learn, uh, learn to use their voice as a major instrumental tool and uh, were influenced by all musics because they came up at a time before genres had completely stratified music. And I get a chance today to talk to a guy who cut some serious albums had some radio play in the early 70s, had a uh, iconic hit for uh, Disney, and uh, continues today to, uh, to create uh, and, and expand the lineage of his music. Stu Nunnery, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Stu, you there? Jake, thank you, and congratulations on your work and uh, the continuing work that you do. I've been listening to your programs. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say is that I'm envious of all the great artists you uh, talk with who had long careers and long narratives uh, in their music world. And as we'll discuss, uh, my narrative was cut short at an early age, and, uh, but I still remain uh, envious of those guys, and I'm happy I'm coming back to music again to have more of a life in it. Well, you know, it's it's integral for the salvation of the soul, and um, you know, I, I, you know, I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, your concept of, um, you know, how we got to a place where uh, uh, the term folk rock came into uh, play. Was it uh, the advent of a of a drum kit? Was it the advent of plugging in? And where did you fit into, were you a folky before folk rock? I mean, if you could break that down, I'd really appreciate it. Well, I was coming out of folk music back in the 60s and early 70s. And um, somebody said to me recently that I was recording with, they said, you know, you're a singer-songwriter. Uh, you don't necessarily have a genre that you fit into. But I was 
as they say, stealing from the best. My style, my vocals, my lyrics were coming from all the influences that I had prior to the age of 24. And uh, I'm reminded of Dylan, uh, who had been criticized often for stealing music. And he said, you know, I couldn't have done anything without the people that preceded me. Exactly. And that's me, too. Mm -hmm. That's me, too. You talk a little bit about the, the I mean, were you... Did, you know, what's, what was fascinating, I was transcribing this interview I did with a decorated engineer sure. and producer, Ed Bogus, and he was talking about, um, you know, essentially um, that Saul Zantz and, and so many of these uh, uh, record company owners uh, or, you know, people that were, you know, whether it was Riverside or on the East Coast or, you know, Fantasy Records, they were all beatniks. They were all from that generation. D can you talk about your exposure to the beats, beat poetry, and how much, if any of those cats, were influential to you? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I worked for a very small record company called Evolution. And, but at the same time, being the 70s, I had a chance to work with legendary musicians from Rick Morata, Elliot Randall, Buzz Featon, and Alan Schwartzberg, and others. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that that period came and went because there was much more uh, allowed I think, for artists back in those days to get the support from the record companies, unlike today. Um, so it was, it was a golden time, and, and my, my history really kind of reflects back to that. I didn't have much after that. So I can't really say what came after that except to say that the 70s were a golden period, and not only artists like me, but musicians like Elliot and others, they still talk about that period of time. And well, I know. I'm, I'm, going, I'm, I'm trying to go back to the... I'm tr I realize that, you know, you... I mean, it's one of my favorite albums that you cut on Evolution, and we heard Sally from Syracuse coming in. But I'm talking back going, if you can go back to your teenage years, even your childhood, uh, the exposure that you had, which kind of poets did you get off on? Because nothing was plugged in at that point. It was all singers, you know, poet and songwriting. Yeah, it's, it's I, I have been writing songs since I was a kid. I, I started playing the piano when I was four years of age, and always knew that I would be a performer. And in order to have something to perform with, of course, I was beginning to write my own songs, which were cops of the music of popular songs, and I would plug in new lyrics. And by the time I got to high school, I had legends. There were, Gordon Lightfoot was one of mine. And, and there were a few other artists that I, I not only emulated, but I adored. I loved their music, I loved their style, and that's what I wanted to be. By the time I got to college, I was writing more uh, material on my own, and by 1973, I had recorded my first album. So, uh, you know, influences are always there, but I think for me, too, by the time I was a very young kid, I knew performing and writing were going to be it for me. Now, one other part of this is that uh, it was Gordon Lightfoot and Elton John hmm. who encapsulated for me hmm. who I wanted to be. I wanted to be a piano player and a singer, and I wanted to be a folk singer like uh, Lightfoot. My first album was a reflection of that, and I didn't get to do a second album, so I didn't know where I was going at that point. Can you talk about uh, when you were four or five years old, uh, you know, some kind of lyrics that you put together and get, allowed you to understand that your, your true nature was as a performer and, and a singer? Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I was trying to think about that a little bit. And, and whatever the popular songs were of the day, and, and a lot of them were novelty songs. I was especially attracted to novelty songs. So what I did when I was a kid is I would put my own lyrics to the novelty songs about family members, about fun things, about kid things or whatever. And it kind of got me into, the, uh, into writing more seriously down the line. But at, at first it was a lark. It was to... Um, have novelty songs to perform because they always got a great response and wanting to be a performer even more than a musical artist um, uh, kind of put me in that direction in addition to being a recording artist I have, was in Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television Radio Artists and my goal had been to become a musical uh, musical theater artist um, I wanted to act I wanted to uh, do comedy and I wanted to sing at the same time I think that all wound up in Sally from Syracuse. Um, so it all, it all encapsulated with Sally from Syracuse. What's so beautiful about talking to Stu Nunnery is that uh, I was, I'm working on a, a, a documentary on uh, the great Stan Getz, and he used to go to uh, these uh, Jewish uh, com comedy clubs in, in, the, in the Berkshires 
uh, and uh, he would be a waiter, and he would also tell jokes, and he would also play his horn. And it sounds to me like uh, that was kind of something where you wanted to do do multi entertainment kind of stuff on the bandstand. Am I, did you have? Did you get a chance to do that? Uh, you know, I mean, New York, Long Island was a bastion uh, of of folk music. That's right. And I'm just trying to get at this idea of, you know, the first exposure that you had to some of these, you know, because it's, you know, again, you're riding, you know, you come in at the same time as uh, guys like T- James Taylor and Cat Stevens and Elton John, but you go back a decade before, who were you getting off on that sort of um was unique. I mean, it could have been the Kingston Trio or, or any of those. What, what, right. Or was it was it was it was it the Questkin Jug Band? Or you break it down. You know, it's 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 a melange, and I think now that I'm I'm coming back to music again, I'm realizing I'm I'm kind of getting a touchback with those influences again. And I'll name two names that will sound totally out of left field. <laughs> but I thought Victor Borg. And I thought Danny Kay were the two most brilliant performers I had ever seen. Let's let's uh, let's flesh that out. Explain both of them. <laughs> well, I think that uh, Borg Borg could play. Obviously, he was a wonderful classical musician, but he reached out to people. He more than anybody touched people. Danny Kay was amazing with his scat singing and his funny acting and his faces and things. So when I got to start performing. And I was performing on Long Island first, and then I was up at the Red Lion and up in Stockbridge, Mass. I would always try to do novelty songs. I would write scripts. I would tell jokes. I would do a number of things, but it was in a very limited venue. So there I'm at the Lion's Den in the Red Lion Inn, which is a very classy place. But in the 70s, it was a very wide open place. And all the artists, the rock and roll artists, would pass through that place during that period of time. They would perform up at the Music Inn while everybody was at Tanglewood. So I had a chance to not only see those people, but take the influences I had as a kid and use them in my own performances. What happened was by 1973, I was in New York recording my first album. And then after six to eight months after the album was released, the company went out of business. So I began playing some New York clubs, but had lost some of those influences I had as a kid and was very much involved in trying to survive as a recording artist. I received a uh, recording contract two years later with Epic Records through John Hammond and recorded half an album for Epic when Epic moved into disco music. And A, first wanted to make me a disco artist, and then second wanted me to lead a uh, super group with some of the well-known musicians from other groups. None of that happened. I left Epic Records, got into jingles, never went back to recording again, and then everything ended between 78 and 1980. But Victor Borg, Danny Kaye, those musical fun artists who really had a soul and especially Victor Borg who reached out to people I was just mesmerized by those guys did you and get a, did you get a, what about what about what about Fred Neal did you get off on Fred Neal at all say that again Fre- uh, Fred Neal uh, the 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 singer Fred Neal uh, did you did you know oh, him yes yes everybody's talking at me and yeah, absolutely yeah oh yeah well I used to sing his music all the time when I performed this is, I mean, I'm not going to let you get away with this easy. I mean, for the record, uh, Stu Nunnery graduated from the Ivy League School of Princeton and then uh, took a job teaching special education. I, I taught special ed for eight years before I burned out. But what's so great is that he was he had a day job, and then he was also playing on Friday and Saturday nights at the Red Line Inn. Can you talk about, I mean, I, I know that, you know, you know, Max Roach would play Tanglewood. I have to believe that some of the jazzers came in there as well. Can you talk about some of the craziest people that would, would, would come through there? An attractive older gentleman dressed to the nines with an ascot and scarf pulled up his chair next to me. And it being the 19, 1970s, when we all hadn't been enlightened, I was a little uncomfortable because he was, he was really staring me down. <laughs> and I walked over to the bartender and said, who's this guy looking at me? He says, oh, that's Thornton Wilder. So we have Thornton Wilder here, but we also have on the night that Nixon resigned, I'm up in the TV room in between sets and with Shelley Winters, who's screaming at the television that Nixon is an asshole. <laughs> and the, the Stockbridge Theater was right up the street from the Red Lion Inn. 
So we would have all the actors and actresses come through. But uh, Arlo Guthrie, of course, was up there, and I knew him, and, and the guys in his band were people that performed at the Red Lion Inn. James Taylor, even now, will pop in on occasion at the Red Lion Inn and perform there. You have to understand that Stockbridge was ground zero, to a great extent, for New England pop rock music. And not only did it, it had Norman Rockwell across the street, of course, and um, there was so much music and art happening up in the Berkshires during the 70s. I felt blessed to be up there at that time. And what happened to me was one night a group of gentlemen came in who owned a kennel right up the street from the Red Lion Inn that was also a recording studio called Shaggy Dog Studios, and they invited me to come up and make a record. Well, I went up and did a demo of four songs, which was what got me my recording contract in New York City. And um, I met Davy Jones and a number of other people that they had invited to come up to the studio as well. So it was an incredible time. You know, we all know the early 70s. Um, it was Elton John. Every, everything from 68 to 72 was everything we love about the 70s music was 68 to 72. Elton John, Joni Mitchell, um, you know, James, everybody, all, everybody showed up at that time. And it was, it was the best influence I could have had. But so was Stockbridge. It well, was just an incredible, incredible place. Well, I mean, you're 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 really articulating this. I mean, I I've interviewed David Clayton Thomas. I've interviewed Gordon Lightfoot, um, and so many of uh, Amos Garrett. So many amazing casts that basically Yonge Street in Toronto. Uh, Neil Young yeah. came out of there. Joni uh lightfoot uh you know the the members of the band came out of these you know real sort of cabbage town areas rugged areas but you're basically saying that that stockbridge was a similar i mean was taylor just on tour coming through or did people actually live there and was it a nightly sort of i guess what i'm trying to get at is this at that time all the cats that you were with or you can just take personalize it yourself. Everybody, it didn't matter if you were a drummer or a singer. If somebody came up to to somebody to a drummer and said, "Oh man, you sounded great. You sounded just like so and so," they would want to slit their wrists because they wanted to sound totally unique. Can you explain that the the onus on authenticity and having your own unique sound? whether it was Yound Street or Stockbridge, Mass., why was that so prevalent at that time, as opposed to today when you hear a homogenization of sound? And then how did you develop your own individual sound? Well, you know, it's, it's, you can also look at California and you can say, how did all that happen out there in California? It was a place, it was a time. Um, Stockbridge liked that. Stockbridge was not California East quite. But um, New England was, and it, it had its folk roots. First of all, it had, it had grounding, and the grounding up there was folk. And we were just coming out of that at the end of the 60s, early 70s, and then we got into folk pop. And so everything was folk pop at that point, and I, I was literally marinating in that stuff up there, and that's what allowed me to become the artist that I became for a short period of time. I was marinating in all this stuff, and it wasn't just music. It was art and literature, and, um, you know, uh, the Berkshires are full of uh, historical places, uh, famous artists, sculptors, painters, you name it. And um, music was, to me, was coming out of all of that juice. And so if you were up there at that time, you were marinating in it. And there were lots of artists that came through there, and I'm not going to say famous artists, all of them, but a lot of artists that went on to have careers, good careers. And um, it was just a place. And the Red Lion Inn, you know, opened in real center. And people were going up there not just to have a nice New England weekend, but to marinate themselves in that culture up there. And everybody was up there. Famous writers were living up there, sculptors, painters. Everybody was up there. Um, right now, the owner of the Red Lion Inn, who's still a good friend, Nancy Fitzpatrick, um, Yo-Yo Ma is up there a lot. Wow. Um, wow. You know, James Taylor is, is you know, in, in, in the center of the state now, but he used to live in Lenox, not far from there. And, and it, it's been in the last, you know, 10, 15 years that he would drop in and say hello. At the same time, if he were there in the 70s, you know, that James Taylor spent time in the Austin Riggs Psychiatric Center, which was across the street from the Red Lion Inn. 
so there were so many little uh, connecting dots that um, you could make up, you know, any kind of history that you wanted there. For me, it was what my music and my career came out of, that kind of marinated stuff. Taylor spent, uh, one, one of his stories is, is that he spent time at the Austin Riggs Psychiatric Center across the street from Red Lion Inn. So that was, that was part of the narrative then that one of our heroes had come through the town at that early period. Now, of course, he's been up there a lot since. But um, Austin Riggs is also known as uh, the reason that um, Norman Rockwell moved down from Vermont to Stockbridge so that his wife could receive care at the Austin Riggs Psychiatric Center. So part of the narrative of that time was not just about music. It was about all the cultural and uh, psychological things that were going on uh, in the society at that time reflected in the artists that we had so much respect for. Did you did you find yourself... you you? coined the term folk pop you, know, you talked about folk pop music uh, and at the time popular music was very listenable and there was a lot of very good pop music out there on the radio and stuff but um, uh, can you talk about you know when folk music is basically uh, you know going back in time taking old folkloric songs uh, could have been you know internationally you know, songs from overseas or uh, in this country and then putting your own sort of twist on it. Um, would you say that you were, ta- you were writing original or taking folk tunes and making them more, uh, I'm not, and I'm not talking in a live setting, but I'm talking like folk pop. You were making them, trying to get them into the more, more pop music stream. I'm just trying to understand um, w- what your accent on folk music was. Sure. Um, you know, when I, when I think about my music history, I go back to the fact that when I was 12 or 13, um, setting, taking piano lessons, and I was a very belligerent student. I didn't want to learn how to read. So music teachers bought me in sheet music that I asked them to bring into me, and I would learn how to play the song um, by ear and sing along with it. So I began my, uh, my playing and vocalizing by using show tunes. So they were particular show tunes that I loved back in that time, and so they would bring the sheet music in, and I would learn how to do that. At the same time, you couldn't ignore all the folk music that was happening around me, whether it's Peter, Paul, and Mary, or the, uh, all the groups that, that you mentioned that we both know as well. That was all there, and I loved it. And it was also music that as I was starting to learn how to play the guitar when I was 13, I was able to play. So while I could hear a song and play it by ear, I could also sing with it. So it was helping me to expand my, uh, my talents, not only play the piano and sing, but now I can play the guitar and sing. And all through high school, that's what I did, whether it was talent shows or uh, get-togethers with other people. And the songs I would sing, I remember, it was Simon and Garfunkel, very definitely. It was the Kingston Trio. It was Gordon Lightfoot, Ian and Sylvia from Canada. And all of those artists were really informing my musical style and, and, and uh, uh, preferences. You know, there's one other artist I wanted to mention that was influential to me, and that was Tom Lear, hmm. and uh, the guy that wrote these great uh, satirical songs mm-hmm. about uh, um, social issues. I loved his work, and once again, I, over the years, I have written a number of satirical songs as well that were um, animated and inspired by Tom Lear, so he was there. But I loved show music because it was theatrical and it was something you could perform. Um, and then I got into folk, and uh, folk was easy. It was a guitar and a vocal. And there were artists that I preferred and artists I wasn't crazy about, but I loved the whole scene. And, but when I came into music in the late early 70s, it was all beginning to change. So I was very fortunate to be part of that transition from just folk into uh, folk rock, Elton John showed up, and so now I'm singing. Now he, he more than anybody showed me that you could write a really interesting song, sing it, sit at the piano, and that's all you needed. Because I, I didn't run around with a band. It was Stu Nunnery on piano and guitar. Yeah, no, I was going to say that um, part of the folk aesthetic, would you say, was that you you wore it as a badge of honor. You could call, call yourself bellicose or belligerent student but it was the idea that being self-taught 
was really the gateway to musical enlightenment. Yeah, very definitely, very definitely. And my my musical uh, gestalt, I guess it is my my whole sense of music came out of that period. But when it uh, gave me the opportunity to both perform, play, and sing at the same time, that was heaven. And um, it, it's it's the thing that that most grabbed me. And even even during the days that I was recording, being able to play an instrument and sing at the same time, that's heaven. It still is. Do you account for the fact that, um, uh, I mean, internal time feel is really important. I've interviewed uh, Leland Sklar, uh, who was James Taylor's bass player for many years. And um, just talking about James's very unique but also incredible sophisticated rhythm chops that he has. And and I think that you fall. I mean, the idea that you didn't play with a trap drummer. Can you talk about the evolution of your in, internal time feel? Obviously, when you got to evolution, you got cats like Murata, and they weren't playing right. o- overly complex stuff, but they were definitely a, there was a rhythm section. I mean, Buzzy Feetin was he's listed on that album as playing bass. I've never seen him play bass on any album before. He played guitar and bass. So I just yeah, it, go ahead. No, uh, it's it's. Uh yeah, that t- that time is that time is very special. It came and went, but um, you know what I need you to do, and I need you to ask that question again. And, and I just wanted you to talk about how you developed your own internal time feel. You talked about Billy Joel, um, Elton John, or yes. was it was it Elton John or Billy Joel? Well, you, you mentioned James Taylor too, yeah. and I think uh, I said this to somebody recently that there are artists that I have studied not just musically. But I have watched how they've done everything. How have they presented themselves? How do they perform? How do they practice? How do they do all these things? So I've been I've been a student of those things for as long as as anything I can I can think of. Um, I was very fortunate in the early 70s to be, as I said, marinating in all these artists. It was Elton John and James Taylor and, and Gordon Lightfoot, my kind of trio there. But there are other artists as well that I was studying and. So it, it wasn't just about copying music, writing music, emulating an artist, whatever. It was, how do I become Stu Nunnery in a unique way? And when I received my first recording contract, it was an opportunity to do that. And I was very fortunate to be with a, a dear friend and a wonderful producer, Al Gorgoni, who did a very good job, I think, of helping me interpret me. I was 23 years of age at the time, hadn't recorded previously. And yet on that first album, we had two songs in the top 100 and a number one song in Brazil. So um, good things happened. Um, I never got to explore the things you're mentioning further after my first album, though it has always been in the forefront for me is if I ever got back to music again, what would be the pillars on which I would build my career again? And they are the exactly the same things that you talked about. Can you? Did you know guys like Ron Frangipani? Uh, did you know who who were some of the arrangers? You did jingle work in New York as well before um, your hearing loss. I was just curious about, you know, some of the stuff like, you know, I mean, I'm just curious about who you connected with originally when you uh, decided, and why did you actually move to New York? It was all a surprise to me. I walked into the studio and, and there was Elliot Randall and Buzz Feeton and Rick Murata and uh, Jimmy Malin and all these wonderful artists that I had never seen before. And remember, they were all in their early 20s, too. So Elliot hadn't done Steely Dan yet. And, and Rick had been Rick, but he hadn't played all these other things, too. But they were they were the best. And Al knew them because they were also doing radio and television jingles in New York City. So the jingle business and the, and the music business were very much connected back in the 70s. And um, uh, when I started doing jingles, you'd walk in and you'd see the New York Philharmonic players playing the string sections on advertisements because that was how they made most of their money. So for me, it was all a surprise to meet these people and then to watch them become the superstars that they were. Let's be clear, though, that Murata didn't start playing drums till he was 19 years old. Um, That's right. You know, and 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 so 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 let me just be clear. You, you're you're playing gigs. You're you're working a, a a gig in special ed. You're playing um, in Stockbridge, and right. 
and then uh, who showed up and said, oh, you cut the demo, and then all of a sudden it was, hey, Evolution, who was in charge, who was the, the who was it in running Evolution? Was it a, a subsidiary label of another one, or, and then they ultimately said, this has come down, and um, did you actually just move down there uh, in conjunction with the record date, or did that take some time? I had, uh, I knew some musicians um, from New York, and again, I'm from New York originally, so... so Who did you know? Do you know Schwartzberg and those cats? Say that again, I'm sorry? Did you know Schwartzberg and those cats? No, I did not. Wow. So who, who were the musicians you were connected with uh, in Long Island? I'm sorry, I didn't understand the question. Well, you said that you'd already known some musicians in New York because you grew up in New York. I grew up in New York. I did not know them. I moved to the Berkshires after college in 1971. And then performed up the red line in 71 to 73, got a recording contract in 73, and stayed in the Berkshires until um, the mid-70s, continued playing at the red line in other places. But after the record came out, it didn't get me a lot of uh, gigs and other things, and the record company went out of business. So um, I stayed up in New England until uh, 1979 when I came back to New York, but by then my music career was pretty much over. I'm just curious about the idea of you once, so the, you know, the album got cut and then the, the, the company went out of business, but did you, yes. did, what kind of jingle, like what kind of, were you commuting if you get called in to do jingle work in New York or, or how would that work out? I mean, you'd, you'd drive in? No, what, what happened is in, um, say between 73 and 75, I drifted back and forth. The company went out of business in 74. Um, I was informed I had a number one record in Brazil at that time, but couldn't travel to Brazil, had no representation, nothing happened. Wow. All the good things that happened in Brazil, I was not able to uh, participate in for more than two decades. And I went back to the Berkshires, and um, I received a call one afternoon from a woman I did not know who said, I've heard your first album, I love your music, and I have a friend who might be able to get you a recording contract. So here I am in the Berkshires, working in a little club, and I get a call from New York. I go to New York, and I find out that her friend is a dear friend of John Hammond at CBS Records. Uh, I go in to interview with John Hammond, and John Hammond says, I love your music. Well, I had done another demo in um, Boston in the mid-70s, 1975, and um, sent it down to this friend of hers in New York, and he introduced my music to John Hammond. John Hammond offered me a recording contract with Epic Records. And if you want a good story, here's a good one. In 1975, I'm in New York City in the CBS building with John Hammond. And John says, I love your music, but Stu, I got to tell you, we got to have a single or two coming out of your first album. We're not just going to do album cuts. He says, because I have this guy in the studio right now that's on his last attempt He's put four albums out. They're brilliant. I think he's the next Dylan. But if th he doesn't have a single this time, he's gone. So you've got to promise me you'll have a couple of singles. I said, sure. I said, what's this guy's name? He said, Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> so Springsteen was in the studio doing Born to Run. Wow. At the same time that I was signed to Epic Records. And, of course, the rest is music history. Bruce is not mine. But um, I'll give you an indication of what was happening. So I'm signed to CBS Records, 1976. And I cut four songs in New York City. While we're there, CBS has made the decision that one of the songs, it's called I've Got Music, is going to be the theme song for the CBS convention in California that year. They're so excited. Well, uh, nothing happened. And they said, you know, we'd like you to redo the song in California, if you wouldn't mind. So I went out to California, recut the song. Now it's sounding a little like the Eagles because of California, 1976. <laughs> who's still a dear friend, was one of the chief engineers at CBS. He had just come back from New Orleans where he had cut Voulez-vous coucher avec moi with La Belle. Epic was so excited they decided they're going to flip the whole channel over to, to disco music. 
and now they're offering me a chance to do disco music. That didn't work out. Then they wanted me to be part of a supergroup, and that didn't work out, and I left. As I'm walking out the door from CBS after a year and a half of trying to get something released, which never happened, I get a call from a jingle producer in New York City by the name of Louise Messina, who says, I love your voice. Do you want to write jingles for us? I had no idea what she was talking about. I went up to her, and over the next couple of months, five of the things that I wrote for her became national advertising campaigns. And for the next three years, it was manna from heaven. I was singing and writing jingles. And at that time, I was making a lot of money because I could sing solo, but I could also sing three or four background parts. And back in those days, they were paying me four times. Wow. So... So that ended, but uh, so I was making a lot of money up until 1980 singing jingles and trying to get another recording contract. It looked like Donnie and Jimmy Einer might sign me to the label that they had at the time, but that didn't happen. So I continued with jingles and worked for another jingle house. And at that jingle house, I was asked to write some music for Disney. And um, Disney, Disneyland's 25th anniversary was coming up in 1980, and they wanted some new music. So I wrote a song called I'm Walking Right Down the Middle of Main Street, USA, which Disney bought. It's become one of their parade themes. It's still one of their parade themes, and it's on all their kids' uh, Disney sing-along videos and everything else. It's been a tremendous success for Disney. Hold on a second. And you, I want to make sure. You, you've been receiving royalty credits for that, right? Again, I'm sorry? You've been receiving royalty credits for that. Well, if you get the, uh, if you Google me or if you get the kids' video sing-along, you will see that I'm listed as the writer of the song. But the, the, the reality is that it was probably a work for hire. They paid me once. I received no additional residuals from that. Oh, my. And it, it's still controversial because um, what oh happened is God. they this started is so using wrong. the theme park. so wrong. That's right. Well, they started using it at the theme parks. And people were telling me, we've heard your song everywhere, of course. It was on this, <laughs> this kid's video that was sold trillions. And um, I sent them a letter through a lawyer um, many years ago, and they said, we don't even have to answer your letter. You know, it was a work for hire. So I still have a plan in, in, in mind, but um, I never received anything beyond that. And ASCAP, who is my performing rights society, did not have a category for theme park music <laughs> up until many years ago. So they couldn't even track how the song was being used at the theme parks because they didn't have a category for it. Well, they have a category for it now, but trying to get through ASCAP to get anything is a very difficult chore these days. And uh, so I have this wonderful history, national television and radio commercials. I have a song for Disney, and uh, I made very good money singing the jingles, but uh, not great money with Disney after that happened. I just want to be clear. It's your your voice. It's your voice on... Walking down the middle of the street. That's you singing, right? That, yeah. uh, not on the Disney song, no. No, so they what took, they, 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 they took you, so you're the original writer, and then they put somebody else's voice to it. Well, what they did is, is it's, it's a cast of thousands. So if you look on the video, it's called the Disney sing-along tapes, and it's called uh, uh, Welcome to Disneyland or whatever. And the opening song is a parade march with cast of thousands. So they're singing it. Um, I was told in 1980 that the song was going to be sung on the celebration television program at that time. Nothing happened. Five years later, I'm in Memphis, Tennessee, having eye surgery. And my uncle calls me and says, Marie Osmond and a cast of thousands just sang your song on a Disneyland promo. So I wrote it in 1978. It shows up in 1985. From 85 until today, it's still a popular parade theme. But I didn't expect they were going to use my voice on it. And um, uh, I, just, I was just commissioned to write the song. So I wrote the song, and that was, uh, that was all she wrote. That's interesting. This is, I also wanted to ask you, do you have an, an idea? Um, you know, we're, we're streaming worldwide right now. This is, you know, extraterrestrial radio. But how did you, how did your song, Lady, It's Time for You to Go, how did it make its way into Brazil? Record companies would sell licenses overseas 
to try to sell records in, in other countries. And, you know, one would expect that maybe one of my English-speaking records would be a hit in South Africa, England, Australia, whatever it is. But Lady, It's Time to Go, um, and I should send you, but Lady, It's Time to Go became the number one record in Brazil in 1974. I did not know this. And um, hmm. how did it become, in 2014, 40 years after the record was a number one record, I was contacted by... VIP magazine in Brazil, which was published by the largest magazine publisher in Brazil, in Latin America, and said, we loved your music. We'd like to do a story about you, right? Forty years later. So they do a story, and it turns out that, you know, you asked me about Stockbridge and why it all happened there. Well, catch this. In 1974, um, Brazil was in the midst of a romantic era. And... Um, English-speaking records were very hot and popular, and Brazilian artists were actually recording songs in English because those records were so popular. Um, there was also uh, the Brazilian culture. I, you'd have to get into Brazilian culture a little bit, but the Sunday afternoon dances and all kinds of things. My record hit a chord, a big chord. In addition, it turns out, I found out 40 years later, the number one soap opera in Brazil um, used the song as their theme song for 10 years. And I never knew about that. Okay, so I, I just want, this is really day. important. Uh, the, I know. The, the, it boggles the, the mind. It, it, it is stunning. I mean, in the, I mean, it's, uh, uh, you're telling me that, that four decades, for 40 years, you had no idea that that song was being played relentlessly in Brazil. That's correct. That's correct. Now, here's, here's, here's a part of the story I think I told you. But, uh, yeah, that's fine. The article in, the article in 2014 um, was titled The Brazilian Sugar Man <laughs> after Sixto Rodriguez, yep. the original sugar man, who also didn't know his music was popular in South Africa. Oh, this is great. Uh, I, I mean, it's not great. It's just, wait, wait, wait. wait what, the, name of it, right. the name of it is what? What was the t name of the, of the article? Well, there you are, and it's, and it's the same story. So, and I never received any residuals or any, any kind of money at all from Brazil. So when they found me in 2014, they alerted me to all the things that have happened. What's happened since then is I've made contact with a lot of people in Brazil who are big fans of mine. I still have a fan base down there, and I'm hoping as soon as possible to get down there and perform for my fans who have loved my music for 40 years, but I didn't know it. What was the what was the name of, of the article, uh, Sugar Man? What was the first couple of things, first couple of words? Of Lady, it's time to go. No, uh, you said that, that an article was printed. Uh, it said, I, you know, something Sugar Man, uh, based on. Oh, uh, they called they uh, they called me um, the tragedy of the Brazilian Sugar Man. Oh, the tragedy and of the tragedy. Holy. The tragedy, of course, was about my hearing loss this, and how I... Well, I mean, music. yeah, I mean, I, you know, I just, I, this is what I want to finish up on in part one with Stu Nunnery. And because and, I don't, uh, sure. listen, you know, this is the bottom line is that nobody gets, uh, we all, we, we always get enough on our plate that we can handle in our lives so we never get too much and, and again uh, one of the l's of my program is life leadership love life and lineage and life is about yeah. over overcoming yeah. adversity so rather than i just want to know how you over how how this hearing loss made ultimately how you persevered, how you overcame it, and how it made you a stronger person where today you are now at a point where what's fascinating is that you have a chance to square the circle and actually go to Brazil and perform. But, you know, how did you talk about that intestinal fortitude and how you, how you overcame it, how it made you a stronger person? Yes, for sure. The, are we starting now or are we going to take a break? No, no, no. This this will be it for part one. So you just riff. Okay, good. Huh. Between 1978 and an air horn went off on the left side and I fell over. 
a year and a half later, the same thing happened in my right ear. And the net effect was that I was completely deaf in the left ear and mostly deaf in the right ear by 1981, at the time when my career had peaked. And um, there was no diagnosis at the time. I know what the story is now, but there was no diagnosis at the time and there was no treatment. I also have severe tinnitus in both ears. So by 1981, I'm out of the music business. Um, actually, no, between 1980, I was put on steroids. And the steroids calmed it down a little bit in my right ear enough that I had taken some of the money I'd made in jingles to go back into the studio to try to record some more music. I recorded four songs. My band was Paul Schaefer, Will Lee, Alan Schwartzberg, Lawrence Juber from um, Wings, and Jimmy Mail and Percussionist. That what? was my band for four songs. So after that, some weeks later, I had a recurrence. That's all she wrote. My music career ended in 1981. And, um, you know, there's lots of parts of that, but if you want to get to where we are today, is that technology, something called auditory training, vocal work, and... Um, Yes, perseverance, that's kind of it, but I wrote an article recently for Hearing Review magazine that said, you know what it was? It was passion. I told you that when I started with the Red Lion Inn, nothing I love to do more than to sit at the piano or with a guitar and sing. That's never left me. So somehow, some way, I was going to try to get back, but I had no idea how to do that. I was in bad shape, and I, I, there was no pitch control. I couldn't sit at a piano. It was painful. I couldn't tune a guitar. None of those things happen. And in 2009, um, I got my first digital hearing aid, which did two things. It opened up the uh, musical canvas for me, and I started hearing frequencies I hadn't heard for 40 years. Mm. Um, it, it, also, it also now has what are called music programs. And when I hit one of the programs, it allows me to hear a broader range of musical tones omnidirectional, so I can hear all the way around a room. One of the big problems with hearing aids is that you hear what's in front of you and that's it. Well, now I have an omnidirectional microphone. I also have, and, and so I'm able to start hearing things I hadn't heard for a long time. People say, you got your hearing back. No, my hearing audiogram today is the same as it was 45 years ago. But what's happened is I, I learned how, over the last five years, how to enhance what's called residual hearing. So I'm not totally deaf in my right ear. There's something there. And what they discovered over the last five years is that the brain hears, not the ears. And if you can help the brain rewire itself by feeding it what it needs musically, you can potentially get your ability back, your capacity back to listen to music, enjoy music, and maybe even make music. That's a tall order. And, you know, we talk about uh, Huey Newton and, and uh, Huey Lewis and all these artists that have lost their hearing over the years, mostly because of noise. Huey had an illness called Meniere's disease. I've had that a couple of times over the last, over many years. Um, so for me, it was passion. I wanted to get back. The other thing was I have a catalog of a lot of music. I have a lot of music that was recorded for CBS Records and in demos over the years that never got released. I don't want it to die on the vine. So I had motivation, I had passion, and I had the ability now to try to make that work. And, and the good news is that in July, I recorded my first song in 44 years. It's not up to my 100% standards, but you know what it is? It's a miracle that I was able to put all the pieces together, technologically, confidence, comfort, find a studio I could work with, an engineer that could work with me and make it happen. So I'm making music again, and I'm going to go forward and it all stems from the fact that I can't live without it. You know, I just want to say it's, it was, uh, you, you know, you articulate this so well. A lot of times uh, it's very hard uh, to describe uh, music and the abstractions, but um, you deserve it. Um, and uh, it was uh, truly an honor to, to connect with you. And I look forward to doing part two with you real soon, Stu. And uh, I'll get a copy of this out to you today and start transcribing some of these stories that are just, absolutely epic i can't thank you enough well thank you jake i'm very proud to be with you and i uh, look forward to forward absolutely my man keep it up man and uh, be uh congratulations on everything thank you so much cheers man
And that was uh, Stu Nunnery, a mercurial, sublime singer-musician who's uh, kind of just been, you know, standing in the shadows. Uh, the tragedy of the Brazilian sugar man, but no longer. He'll be in Brazil within the next year or so, I guarantee that. We'll be back with Barry Sless on the other side on the Jake Feinberg Show. Take 